This week, we uh, launch into a conversation uh, regarding the story of Esther. Uh, Esther is one of two books in the Bible that, uh, uh, that, that a lady's name is the name of it. Um, it is uh, one of two books in the Bible where the name of God is never mentioned. Interesting, isn't it? Well, we're going to dive into that a little bit. Uh, a handful of uh, years ago, uh, I had the privilege of getting with some family and some others and, and going to uh, Israel. And uh, we stayed a couple of weeks uh, exploring all the different places and sights and sounds and absolutely life-changing. Uh, we uh, stayed in a hotel that was actually within the current walls around uh, old Jerusalem. Uh, still uh, pot-marked by bullets from the uh, Six-Day War, uh, and it, it was just an unbelievable experience. And one of the, and we were there in March, which is significant to the story here, and uh, one of the days that we were out, I, I began to see different people uh, wearing uh, like uh, masks and costumes and such, and uh, people just kind of running around and jumping around and just having uh, a lot of fun and just uh, uh, seeing this going on and, and people uh, giving uh, gifts to each other. And, and uh, as we go to the shops, uh, uh, particularly, obviously, in the Jewish quarter, uh, I could tell uh, that they were, they were kind of looking at their watches, <laughs> waiting for the day to come to an end and found out that they had been fasting all day, and man, they were ready to go party. It was time to eat, it was time to celebrate, and, and what they were celebrating is known as the Feast of Purim. And uh, the, the Purim is a, a, a lot or a dice, if you will, uh, that would be cast to, to determine some outcome, and in the story, uh, the Purim come into play. Uh, and, and at the end of the story, they decided to name this whole incredible experience uh, to celebrate it with this feast called Purim. And we got to witness that and experience that. So uh, I, I really, really uh, uh, just resonate uh, with this story and was contemplating some of the realities before you can jump into a story, it's so important uh, to have a foundation of context. Uh, what ends up happening if we're not careful, particularly when we come to the Bible, we will say something like, what does this mean to me? You see what happened there? Oops, it's not how we're supposed to study the Bible. We come to it and we ask the Lord to show us what does this mean? And at that point then to uh, uh, invite the Holy Spirit to do the work to adjust our lives to line up with the realities that have been revealed in the scripture. Uh, without a, uh, a context to this story in particular, it, it would be a bit of a head scratcher. 
it is a, a, a wonderful once upon a time story. Once upon a time, there was this peasant orphan girl who ended up, you know, it's very Cinderella-like. And you read it and you're going, wow, okay, so why is this in the Bible, <laughs> right? Doesn't mention God. Doesn't mention prayer. Doesn't mention Jerusalem. Doesn't mention the law of Moses. Doesn't mention the promised land. And we, we go, what, what is, what's going on there? And the, the interesting, uh, it, uh, one of the things that comes out of Scripture that we need to grab a hold of when it comes to God and His purposes is that God uh, will never abandon His plans, His purposes, His promises, or His people. And we will find that over and over and over again as we work our way through Scripture, this commitment that God has. And as we come to this, this particular scene, we have to keep in mind the much bigger picture. And it is a call upon us to, as, as, as she lived her moment, as we live our moment, we never isolate the realities that we are experiencing in the context of the singular link of time that is, that is a part of the much bigger eternity. The bigger story begins in the book of Genesis and we see it unfold and it comes to the book of Revelation. In the book of Genesis, God created. God created people, the pinnacle of his creation, men and women in his image. They made a decision to disobey and go their own way. In so doing, ushering in the reality of death, of sin, of evil, of all stripes and kinds. And it's just horrid what entered into the human story the moment that the first fist was shaken at God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's, very, it's, it's like one of those keys that you need to know uh, in, in terms of the big story to have some clarity as we consider some of the smaller stories. Here, God is speaking to the serpent after they have sinned. He has a word for the man. He has a word for the woman. Then he has a word for the serpent, for the devil. It says there's going to be enmity. There's going to be this constant fighting between you and the seed of the woman. There will be this bruising of his heel, but the crushing of your head. Here we see the first picture, the first invitation to consider the one who would come to deal with the reality of Satan and his work to destroy it. See, we have to ask ourselves the question, why are there so many maniacal people in the course of thousands and thousands of years who have time and time again tried to annihilate the Jewish people? Why is there such a, a hatred even today aimed and targeted at the Jewish people? 
And by connection to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, those who put their faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, becomes a Christ follower, has also come under unbelievable persecution throughout the centuries. Those who would say, I'm a Jesus follower, living in absolute oppression in many parts of the world. Why the hatred of Christians, Jesus followers? What is happening? We have to understand the bigger story. There's a dark force behind it all, bruising the heel of the seed who would come. We have to understand the bigger story or we can't, can't get a picture or, or a clarity as to what in the world is going on. And so we find um, this scene uh, of, uh, of a king, of a young uh, a Jewish woman in exile and her uncle slash adopted father and this queen and this enemy of the Jewish people and we see it all and now it begins to come into a little bit of a focus just exactly what is happening and here we are invited I believe um, and I I did I just had so much fun in my studies this week looking forward to this uh, a series and, and studying the, and one of the, the easily far and away the best uh, the one I most resonated with in terms of commentary and the things that he had to say is Pastor Alistair Begg it's so important to always give uh, a, a credit in communication and some of his uh, insights and thoughts just really resonated with me and will become they'll be in and out of our series as we go along uh, but always important uh, to acknowledge that up, up front. Um, he, he made this quote, and I, and I think this is just so uh, wonderful for us to chew on here at the front end before we enter into the story. Do not try to interpret events of your life in terms of immediate impact or personal relevance. If we do, we'll go wrong in interpreting events they are never only about us and only about now. This uh, propensity that we have to take our little link of time and to see an event that is happening, maybe good, maybe we would say not so good, maybe hard, maybe painful, and we, we, we hold it right there and we... Uh, I'll look at it with this myopic perspective. I, me, my. We fail to step back into the bigger story to understand. No, it's he, him, and we. There are things uh, that have happened. We, we sometimes forget, oh, there's been, I don't know how many centuries of ancestors before I got here. They're part of the same story. And something was going on in their story that led to me to be in this part of my story and that there is so much more that is left to come after me, only known in the mind of God how long that is. But the story that, that, in, that 
we live is one link in eternity. It is not isolated. It is not independent. It is not exclusive to us. The ripples of the realities of our lives carry weight, ripple out into many other lives, even into the lives of those yet to be born. And if we're not careful, we stop and we see everything or look at everything here and we don't understand, we don't come to an appreciation for whatever that is to the much bigger story that's in play. God providing his redeemer in Christ and now the good news of this Redeemer carried to the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the purpose of giving all that opportunity to respond to the message of Christ and then in the fullness of time, known only by the Father, he'll say, now. And the angel will shout and the trumpet will sound. And as we head into Revelation chapter 21, we see a new Jerusalem descending. God dwelling with his people, with him for eternity, a new earth, a new heaven, residing without sin, pain, suffering, or death. It is a much bigger story. We cannot lose sight of it here the story of Esther and the reality of our own lives as we consider it in the context of the big story, we are asked over and over and over again to trust God in our little bitty story that the weight, the weight and the wonder of that is the understanding of the reality of my little time in the story how that will play in the bigger picture that God, by the way, knows, remember, from the end, beginning to the end, in its fullness, every, every ripple is accounted for in the plan of God and the life that we live as it is attached to the bigger story. Be careful, be very careful to weigh the events of your life in such a small little perspective. It's much bigger than that. And we are asked to trust. Now why, why as we come to the story, I mentioned that in the book of Esther, we don't, we don't even hear God's name. Nobody prays. Nobody talks about Jerusalem. Nobody talks about the promised land. Nobody, nobody enters into worship. Isn't that fascinating? We said, why is this book in the Bible? I'm not even talking about God. Or is it? Well, the, the deep uh, seminary answer as to why Esther is in the book of the Bible, and you know, you gotta go for years for this, by the way. It's because God wanted it to be there. And why, why is his name not mentioned in the story or prayer or worship or any of those things? Why is that not mentioned in there? Well, again, it's because God didn't want it. Didn't want his name to be mentioned in this particular story. Fascinating, isn't it? Ultimately, 
and we are uh, uh, invited to consider some truths that are related in, uh, to, to other revelation scripture that he gives us, where there is no place that we can go where God is not, Psalm 139. He's ever present. So here we are invited to consider this truth that God is present in events even when it appears he is not. As we see the story, we see this theme unfold. The God is present in events, even when from all external pictures, from the, from the person themselves in the middle of the situation, and where's God? Oh, he's present. He's ever present. Uh, we're, in, we're invited to consider that God is present in those moments that, that, are, that just kind of pass, and it, it really wasn't a spectacular moment, maybe kind of like an everyday kind of a moment, but God is no less present, no less powerful in those moments than he is when Moses stands at the Red Sea with his staff and God parts the waters. The presence and the power of God is no more or less in play in the, the day-to-day than it is when he stands on, when Elijah stands on Mount Carmel and calls down fire from heaven. And it is, it is the one who embraces the realities of the bigger story and the implications of it that, that sees all of that. And the story of Esther invites us to look for God in the, quote, coincidences. To look for God and his work and his power in the, the ironic reversals that are all throughout this story. It's unbelievable. My challenge and encouragement to you is that you begin your reading. That you just, I mean, just read the whole thing. Read it to your kids. And then read it again. Read it again. Keep going through. Keep reading the story. Soaking it in. Listening, looking, watching for a God who is never mentioned by name. Wow. Wow. So we come to uh, our first uh, scripture here that we're going to jump into. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. But I like saying Xerxes, so I'm going to go with Xerxes. It's kind of easy. It's kind of cool. Xerxes, right? So we're going to do that. He reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India. You got that in your mind? From India to Ethiopia. Now you're going to have to get out your atlas, and you're going to have to take a look at that. What is being said here is quite staggering. That this king, this individual, reigns over this incredible mass of territory and countless numbers of people, including, by the way, Palestine, the promised land. At the time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 
180 days. That's a long party. Really. I mean, maybe there was time for people to come and travel there and get there. Remember how big it is and all of that. But 180 days. And it's important to note that during this time, it wasn't just about a party. Xerxes had a very, very intense purpose in mind as he was gathering all of his military leaders at this point in history. His desire, he had all of that, but it wasn't enough. He wanted Greece. He wanted to conquer Greece. So he got all these guys together in the midst of their party, and they began to plan their military strategy, which, by the way, ended poorly <laughs> for Xerxes. If uh, you consider 127 provinces stretching from India to, you know, it's small. But anyway, it put on display his opulent wealth and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. Well, when it was all over, it would be the 180 days, the king gave a banquet for the people, all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. Many understand that. Now it's time for the party for those who, who were serving during this big party this whole time. Uh, that kind of an understanding there. Well, it lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. What? We don't know who wrote Esther, but it's uh, common amongst the commentators that he, he was a eyewitness. He was there, saw it. Lots of different opinions about who it was, but that understanding this was somebody who was in on some of the inner workings of this man's empire and throne. Drinks were served in solo cups. Oh, no, they weren't. They weren't in the solo cups. That's just my house. <laughs> oh, my. Gold goblets of many designs, and there was abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. And at the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Two simultaneous parties happening uh, at the same time, one for the men, one for the women. After the six-month party with all of his military leaders and all the governors of all these provinces, and when we stop and we're seeing introduced to us this king, we go, wow. He, uh, uh, he, this guy's life is like none you and I will ever even begin to remotely understand. As a king here at this point in time, we see verse 1 through 3 tell us that he held an unbelievable amount of power. Power, 
power over people, power over uh, uh, trade routes, power over life and death. He wanted you dead, he'd just look at you and the bag goes over your head and it's lights out. Power, raw power. To such a degree, it's, you just can't even wrap your head around it. Then uh, we find also in verse four through seven, uh, this, this man had a, a level of wealth that was attained or gathered, gained through the conquering of all these different provinces and people groups. He would take all the wealth, the gold, the everything that he wanted, and he'd haul it back into his kingdom. Wealth unimaginable, and it goes into great detail describing the wonder and the splendor of the wealth. Verses 8 through 9 tell us something that uh, our world, uh, even today, advocates as somebody who's really got it all. This man had no limits, no limits on his life. Whatever he wanted to do, he did. Wherever he wanted to go, he went, except for Greece. He didn't do well there. <laughs> but anything and everything that could come to his mind, I want it. I want it all. I want it now. And it was his life without any limits or boundaries, no wonderful mom, as far as we know, that would come along King Xerxes and say, no, son, he can't do that. <laughs> he didn't have it. Whatever he wanted to do, that's what he did. Unbelievable power, immeasurable wealth, a limitless kind of I want what I want, when I want kind of life. This is King Xerxes, and we go, wow. Uh, if, uh, if I was picking like a, a professional wrestling name for him, <laughs> I'd call him the big deal. King, the big deal Xerxes, right? That's kind of how that would roll in my little mind. He's the big deal. Everybody treated him like the big deal. The man had no perspective. He was just, I'm the king. I'm the big deal, the center of it all. Now, we come to this story, and we've stepped away from the bigger perspective. We're going to lose something very important in understanding the reality of what will unfold as the story moves on. And so it is important for us to, to take a step back and say, now, wait a minute. Here's this king, okay? Wow, all this stuff, all this wealth, all this land, all this power, all this money. He just could do whatever he wants, right? Man, that's kind of a big deal. And we said, oh, no, wait a minute. Let's, let's see how he compares or stacks up to the king of kings. Oh, I love Isaiah. He, he, lays, he lays this out for us to, to ponder and to consider when we are talking about the God who created everything, and we bring his, the big story of who he is into this little ring of this man's story, and then all of a sudden our perspective is improved. 
and we're better equipped to get a hold of, of what really is going on. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, and I'm just going to read the whole rest of this chapter. I love it. It's awesome. Follow along. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They're nothing than dust on the scales. I just love that picture. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. All the wood in Lebanon's forest and all Lebanon's animals could not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall over. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below him seem like grasshoppers. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent for them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing, including Xerxes. They hardly get started, barely taking root when he just blows on them. They wither. The wind carries them off like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion, but those those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. A tale of two kings. A perspective to consider. 
One king, as we described earlier, as we read the introduction there, another king, as we reflect in Isaiah's words in Isaiah 40, the king of kings. And it is the king of kings who has created all things, the king of kings who owns everything, who rules everything now and forever. Xerxes, a little blip on the timeline, and he's gone. Our king, the king of kings, sits at the right hand of the father, ruling and reigning now and for all time, preparing as the Father has instructed for all things to be laid at his feet to establish the eternal kingdom in his time. The King of Kings. You see, Jesus is the biggest deal of them all. It's the biggest deal of them all. And you know what? It's just not even close. There's no real comparison. There's no real conversation in that. It'd be hard to write that term paper, compare and contrast. You're just like, ah, <laughs> right? He's just so far other, so much more. He is the biggest deal of them all. And if we enter the stories of Scripture and the story even of our own life with our focus off of him, uh, things happen that, 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 that cause us to, 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 to trip up, to stumble. If I come into the realities of my life, however I may, I may describe them, good, bad, indifferent, neutral, hard, happy, you know, gr grief, I, however we want to describe whatever that situation is, if I come into it without my focus on him, what begins to happen is I misinterpret the circumstances that are in my world. Xerxes, we see very clearly the heart of Nebuchadnezzar in him. Nebuchadnezzar who stood over his city and said, look what I have done. He lost perspective, didn't he? And God had to humble him, remind him who the king of kings is. And we see that same type of spirit in Xerxes. We get off focus, we get off mission. The mission of those who have come to understand Jesus as their Lord and Savior have the great privilege to share that good news with other people. And yet if I'm enamored with the moment, the things in front of me, and I lose sight of that much bigger picture in Christ, the mission becomes secondary to the cares of the moment, the, 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 the things that, that, that I want to do, I can see and I can hear and I can touch and I get, I get into, absorbed into all of that and I miss the bigger call to shine a light. I miss that, that, that touch that my life is to have to the bigger story. Mm, I get stuck with the temporary. I don't see the eternal through the circumstances of my day. Might be in that place where we 
as Jesus said, many are believe, hey, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and yet on that day he says, I don't even know who you are. We miss it. We miss him. Oh, we got to be focused on that bigger picture and this reality in all the circumstances of every day that God, listen, will not abandon. He will not abandon his plans. He's not going to abandon his purposes. He's not going to abandon his promises. And he sure as the world is not going to abandon his people now or forever. Esther invites us to enter into the truth of that as we carry along the big picture for our time, a time such as this. Where, where are we in our minds today and in our focus and in our hearts? Is it all about this? Or has God invited us into the wonder of the much bigger picture? And we, we find in that bigger picture the opportunity to trust him even when our little picture doesn't make any sense. Mm. praying that God has a great work in your life and in mine as we enter in to this study over the next couple of months. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the invitation to enter into your bigger plan, your bigger purpose. May you find us uh, in that space of always knowing there is an above to this story. There's a deeper, a deeper significance. There is a, a ripple effect beyond my brief moment on planet Earth. There are purposes in play that have an eternal significance. And it begins with my eyes firmly set on the King of Kings. In his name I pray, amen.